subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. WeCharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. WeCharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by ReCharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with ReCharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Sahan Dilmagani, who is the CEO and co-founder of Terra Cafe. So, Sahan, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and the brand that you're building with Terra Cafe. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Um, happy to happy to share our story. Um, the soup to nuts. It's it's wow. I mean, started the company five years ago. Was originally working in uh, electric vehicles in a startup in Germany. So was kind of coming with a little bit of like a finance corp dev background. But uh, just by virtue of speaking Mandarin, got a lot of exposure to operations, production, supply chain, manufacturing. You know, you can take a wild guess and say having a having familiarity with supply chain comes in pretty handy these days if you're working in the hardware space. And um, you know, as bombastic as it is to say, uh, I just kind of was surrounded by these incredible people. And I looked left, I looked right, and I was like, I feel like we could build anything we wanted to, you know. And felt very grateful. Felt really, really, you know, like I was in a special place, surrounded by incredibly talented people. And that was that was kind of the professional background before kicking off Terra Cafe, but. Um, on a more kind of like personal side, you know, chalk it up to being Middle Eastern, but like coffee is just like the social nucleus of our lives. It's always like hot drinks, tea, coffee, and like dried fruits. And I always say like, I didn't, I didn't make the rules. I just follow them. Right. So <laughs> it was, uh, one of those outlier families. We had every gadget under the sun and, you know, I always, I, I always remember my mom just kicking back a Turkish coffee before she went to sleep at night. And I was just like, that was like the most gangster thing I'd ever seen. But, you know, here we are. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's like hard to decouple that from the business side of the brain. I was, I was super, you know, personally motivated to just learn more about coffee science, specifically learning more about espresso extraction, especially while I was living abroad. And um, you kind of just started researching more and more about the category. And I noticed two macro trends uh, that was at that time, I guess, 2017, where we saw one um, that espresso just became uh, the most ordered drink in the US. So in 2017, the latte surpassed drip coffee as much as a lot of people love to hate on Starbucks. I get their reverence, but you got to pay a little bit of respect for three and a half decades of growth of growing that category. And the second macro trend was just the fall of pod base um, coffee system. So like you basically had your duopoly of Keurig and Nespresso um, pretty much owning the category. But then people got really tired of these single use plastic and virgin aluminum solutions and wanted better quality, better selection, you know, even comes at a better price or a better running cost for uh, for the user. So 
that's that's kind of where I saw the opportunity all pre-pandemic. Um, but that's where I got started and was uh, building out that company in Germany. So yeah, fast forward five years, here we are. <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. And I'm one of the reasons I'm really excited for this episode is just to kind of like break into how you guys actually go about building this physical product. I know you said you have background in supply chain and being able to do all this. So why don't we uh, dig in there a little bit? What were what were you doing before in this electric vehicles company? What was your background and what were you doing in China and to have the background in Mandarin to um, you know set yourself up to build a company like this? Yeah, the Mandarin one is a wild one, man. So that's you gotta you gotta backdate that one to circa 1999. My I I I, I kid you not. That was uh, I took a lemonade stand a little too seriously, and my mom was like, "This kid needs to be in in Chinese classes like that." You know, I'm I'm it's 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 so silly to say it, but it was Saturday it was Farsi school, Sunday it was Chinese school, Monday to Friday Spanish classes and normal classes. So like that was my upbringing, and it's it's kind of. You know, it, it's kind of cool to think back about how things snowball or how dots connect over time, but was spending a lot of time hopping back and forth to China, largely doing language study, did a little bit of work there, but became very close friends with someone who ended up founding this electric vehicle company that I then later joined in, in, in Germany. But after graduating and so on, I was working in investment banking, doing middle market, IBD. So it was just M&A and private placement for tech-enabled businesses. Um, I, I'm actually, I know this is like maybe rather, um, not taboo, but maybe counter to what most people say, but I was actually quite grateful for my, my experience. I had a really good MD. I had a really good mentor. I was really grateful for my boss. He was one of these just salt of the, salt of the earth guys. And a lot of my friends were like, man, banking is not your personality. <laughs> and, um, they weren't wrong. I would say in broad strokes, they weren't wrong. I was really grateful. Um, and. I was grateful for having a good boss, a good mentor, learning a lot, and frankly, being inside a pressure cooker. And you know that expression of like pressure makes diamonds. Sometimes, sometimes they can be a little much, but like it can be great too. And so, I wanted to get back to doing entrepreneurial things. And as cliche as that is to to say, like we, well, I was doing a lot of different entrepreneurial things since I was a kid. My first company I started um, when I was like. 15, 16, was like a summer clinic teaching people ultimate frisbee. Tried to start a wind farm when I was 18. Wanted to get back to startups. There's a lot of stories, man. Surprise, surprise. Nobody wanted to give an 18-year-old $10 million to buy three three megawatt turbines. So that didn't pan out the way I thought it would. But good life lesson. Was um, going to join a startup in SF that was kind of like a post-series B that... Um, I had an offer at, but it was a lot of people from my undergrad. And then my friend from Germany was just saying like, hey man, we're moving the office from Munich to Berlin. Um, we've, you know, you've known us since the beginning. Every time I had even the smallest break, I would buy a flight to, to Munich to visit them. And he was like, why don't we come and do this full time? Like, let's do this for real. Um, and yeah, that was, that was the decision to jump over there. You know, this is like long story long here. So apologies guys, <laughs> but kind of going through Kind of going through everything um, at that company, it was it was a really special experience. I I was I would say that when I got there, it was a lot of classic like buttoning things up on the finance side of the business, getting them ready for a Series A fundraise. But it's it's startups, right? You wear all the hats. So I always said, you know, it's like corp, head of corporate development means like you kind of do like everything and nothing at the same time. So um, just got exposure to so many parts of the business, even going into the expansion side. Um, expanding into the Netherlands and France and getting to see what that looks like. Also realizing how hard it is to really 
growth throughout the European market, being you know cognizant of the different languages, regulatory frameworks, currencies, and so on. Um, and so, <laughs> needless to say, also very grateful to be able to come back to the U.S. and build build a company here. But um, it was just being surrounded by incredible people, also like demystifying building hardware, like going understanding what sourcing processes look like, understanding you know what do you want to work with off the shelf, what do you want to build custom, understanding that. You know, you kind of have to make this, it's a, it's a story of trade-offs where you're going to make decisions where you got to be judicious, especially if you're bootstrapped, which you were at the beginning and doing a trip to China, meeting manufacturers, finding out which ones would be more amenable to changes that would kind of get a product ready for the kind of U.S. market and getting an MVP out there for product market fit. You know, the adage of hardware is hard is true, but I'm, I'm a big advocate for there are more efficient ways to do it. And I think we proved that out with, uh, with the TK one, but, um, yeah, I, 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 I touched on your question, but I, I hope I <laughs> totally, I think, you know, there's such a, there's such a diversity in terms of experience that, that you've had there and such exposure to different, um, verticals and stuff like that. Like how, how did it come about to, you know, drill it down to Terra Cafe um, because it seems like, you know, investment banking, manufacturing, etc. You were part of M&A, like you were exposed to a bunch of stuff, which typically causes um, analysis paralysis. It sort of, you know, makes it a little bit harder to know what you really want to go after after being exposed to so much. So, you know, what was the path? Um, were there was there other attempts before Terra Cafe or Terra Cafe was like the one? Oh my gosh, man. I got the longest Google sheet on the planet with different ideas. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, 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 would, I would definitely say it was like a jazzy journey, you know, and you definitely can get, you know, frozen into inaction. But I, 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 I play with a lot of ideas, you know, I, to avoid like too discursive of thought here. I'll just share like one of them that I was playing with beforehand, which was, this was still before like the Amazon Go days being widely known. And it wasn't even something I think they had published their promo video around um, in kind of like the 2016 period where I was like playing with some ideas. Um, but I remember trying to think about a hardware solution where, you know, it was the same idea. You wouldn't actually need to have any sort of cash register system set up or the, at least the conventional setup of a grocery store wouldn't be needed if you had a hardware shell where you basically drop in the outer shell of the of the basket as you're walking out the door, which triggers the transaction. And then your basket is one that you get to keep and take home with you as a method of basically using hardware and AI to try and, you know, and obviously a myriad of sensors to, to create a hardware solution to give any sort of company an opportunity for kind of that seamless transaction going through a supermarket or frankly, any sort of retail experience. But I digress, right? Like it's, you know, Played with so many, so many ideas. Um, I think, again, going back to coffee, like having a, a very kind of close personal connection to the category always helps because I think if there's one thing I can impart on new founders, it, it, it's just like equanimity, equanimity through it all. Like you're going to have highs, you're going to have lows. And I think having that balance is incredibly important. Um, it's a, a, it's a little scott Galloway-ian in a way i don't know if that's the right way to refer to that but like nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems you know i i i i think that for me was okay this is the trifecta this is this is white space opportunity 
this is this is you know really clear clear passion for the category. You really, I really can't emphasize that enough. I really do think it helps um, to kind of work through a lot of the crucible that is entrepreneurship, and then it's competency. You know, I I I could be super fascinated with with crypto, but I might be the last guy you really want doing a crypto project or leading a crypto project, right? So I'm not. Um, I don't want to count myself out yet, but I'm just saying I think you need to check those three boxes before you get started. And in that evolutionary scale of, of kind of coffee products for the home, I just felt like there was a missing link. That was It was just so clear to me that there was this area that was easy to use, but you made all these trade-offs in terms of quality, sustainability, running costs, the options, the optionality, like the kind of selection that you had, especially within kind of that like Nespresso framework where you have the closed ecosystem. And on the other side, you had this oftentimes incredibly inundating products where you would have to get multiple different gadgets. It would take up quite a lot of space on the countertop and, and, and frankly, just be too inundating for the average American's daily morning ritual and routine. And I was like, what, where, what is that like Venn diagram, the best of both worlds? What, what product is that? Is there a new brand? Is there anybody doing anything interesting that resonates with a modern consumer? And when I felt like in that, in that gap was actually a massive white space, I, I felt like that was enough to take the leap. And I think the fallacy is that you're going to pick an idea that you have 100% conviction around and that everything is perfectly mapped out and there's no question, no sh like not a shadow of a doubt, that that's a, the idea. That is never the case. You're going to iterate as you start developing and getting into market and learning things. But that was enough for me to you know make the jump. And yeah. Uh, I, I think like this I said, is perfect. I think this is yeah. perfect timing for the audience to visualize what that vision turned out to be. So can you describe the Terra Cafe? Um, can you describe the actual machine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Terra Cafe TK1 espresso machine is a super automatic bean to cup espresso machine. What that means is you pick any coffee beans you like. We do have a great selection on our website where we work with a number of top tier roasters across the US. But you can pick any beans you like, any milk you like, put it into the machine and push a button. It'll grind, tamp, extract, milk froth, do everything for you so that you can have uh, any, any drink from an espresso to a cappuccino at the touch of a button in under 60 seconds. And so that's the idea, right? You want that simplicity. You want to make that morning routine as seamless as possible. But you also want to have the optionality to keep educating yourself, keep learning more, keep tweaking things. And that's what I really like. We designed a minimalist device that fits really kind of beautifully on your counter, kitchen countertop that earns its real estate, but is, is still quiet, so to speak, in terms of, you know, we're not trying to dominate the space. This might be the first thing that you interact with outside of your bed. We wanted to have the same kind of warmth and invitation and making it really simple. And for those people that want to learn more, that want to kind of go deeper into the weeds and want to start playing with espresso extraction, you can start playing with all different variables. You can play with the temperature, the dosing, the extraction volume, and so on. And it's kind of allowing multiple layers to then resonate with different types of consumers. And that's the truth is that we, we do resonate with a lot of different types of consumer, coffee consumers and just household types. Some people just wanted it simple and some people love playing with every single parameter. Yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting about what you said about 
leaving flexibility for the customer is the fact that you're able to take all the parts of the coffee making process, put them in one machine, but at the same point, you're able to provide flexibility in terms of the coffee beans that you want to put in or the type of milk that you were going to use or all these different parts that, as you were mentioning before, were probably standalone products, right? Like before you would have, uh, like the coffee grinder was a product in of itself. The, uh, the milk frother was an ancillary product of itself and the espresso maker, they're all different things. And you guys kind of were able to wrap everything all up and put it in one, right? Um, so why don't we go back to now, let's go back to like kind of the genesis and getting to MVP. So you have the background in like hardware and hard tech, um, and now you actually want to make something. You know the suppliers, you know a couple ideas of how you're going to make it. What is getting to MVP look like for you? Like what, you know, what are the inputs that you're dealing with and how are you like, what is the MVP in the first TK 0.1, if you want to call it, what does that look like? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the journey is kind of like figuring out where you want to be and working backwards, right? And so familiarity with, with hardware and complex hardware at that was certainly a leg up on getting started. But that notion of it takes a village is really true. <laughs> um, so you need to have that kind of cooperation and buy-in from a lot of different parties to make it happen. I'll be honest with you, when I, when I got started, I tapped on a lot of my kind of personal, social, professional capital, not <laughs> When you're bootstrap, you got to tap into any type of capital you got. You know what I mean? So, kind of, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not trivial to say that the people that helped me get started from my old startup really made the difference for us to get off the ground. And that's a mixed bag of MEs, uh, mechanical engineers, uh, industrial designers, um, you know, just generally the engineers and creatives that it takes to get off the ground, especially if you're talking about a consumable. Um, it's a whole different ball game too. Not to not not to say that it. Um, a, not to say that it's harder than electric vehicles, but maybe like a little bit, you know, <laughs> like, um, don't, don't, don't at me, Elon Musk. That's um, how Elon Musk was saying <laughs> that the Twitter, um, fake followers, uh, you know, deceiving that was harder than, than building electric vehicles. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> we're gonna blow past that one cause that's just one gigantic minefield I'm not going to mess with. Um, but yeah, no, I, um, <laughs> I, I do, I do think that there was just so much complexity that went into the product, you know, just saying that I felt comfortable in this space. It, 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 I think you, you phrased it perfectly. It's like being familiar with what the inputs are. So if you have an intimate understanding of what it takes to get to that first product, um, I think it, it, I wouldn't say it necessarily makes it easy. I think it makes it less intimidating. I think when you can, it's, it's that like the, what do they t say when it comes to like avoiding procrastination? It's like one, you need to acknowledge your feelings. You're probably feeling inundated. You're feeling overwhelmed. Just acknowledge it. And second is just break things up into digestible chunks. That was all it was. It was just breaking it up into digestible chunks that you chip away at. So I, we knew where we wanted to be. I had the right people involved. I think the hardest part for me was getting, um, getting supplier buy-in when you don't really have a reputation. Look, I'm still on the younger side. This would kind of be my, let's call it a first time founder for a venture backed business. Um, it, it was, it was tough to kind of get the investment from, from 
people that weren't familiar with me, you know, coming from electric vehicles helps, but you're definitely fighting an uphill battle when it's your first like large scale venture, at least that's what you're targeting. And so I think that was a really challenging moment. And I still remember, you know, getting the first two prototypes and I, I just actually moved back to the US, got to New York, and never lived in New York, didn't know much about it and was just told that cool stores are in Soho. So I had two prototypes and I knocked on a hundred doors in Soho, said, can I serve coffee to your weekend crowds? And you knock on a hundred doors, you know, five people say, yeah. And that's how it started and started kind of, I, frankly, I actually, I'm, I'm weirdly appreciative of that moment. Um, I, I felt like I was living the pursuit of happiness in reverse. You know, he like starts off schlepping machines on the subway and then he's like on Wall Street. <laughs> I was like, did I, I do this backwards? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to dive into that strat, into that about like knocking on those doors. I'm fascinated by that. Like, you know, um, there's so much, so many ways to prove concepts and MVPs this, these days. And we forget about, you know, the, the, the original way to do it is just to get in front of someone's face and, and see their expression and ask them what they think about it. So what they think about it. So at this moment, you had the prototype that would serve the same cup of coffee that you can serve today or close enough, right? Um, how did that go? What ex what came out of that experience of, you know, you knocked at 100 doors, you got five people, um, did you, you kept knocking on doors, anything come out of that outside than just like the feedback that you got? <laughs> so much, so much. I, I, I like when you're like, was it basically the same machine today? And I'm like, you can like hear the equivocation. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, no, a lot, a lot came out of, a lot came out of that journey. Um, knocking on doors, look, you learn a lot about your product. You get a lot of input. Um, I know because our machines have cup counters on them that, you know, I was serving cups in the thousands, uh, and it, we, it, it was a lot, um, it was, it was a lot of time commitment, of course. And there's so many other elements of the business you need to be focusing on at that time, but any, any kind of waking moment you have, uh, to, to basically spare you're you're putting in the direction of like, I need to beat the drum for the business. The amount of partnerships, relationships, people that just came to me that said, I love the design of this thing. Can we, what if we just did a photo shoot? Like, what if I just give, give us like a discount on a machine, I'll do a photo shoot for you. And it's like kind of being in New York, right? Like part of the rationale of coming here, of course, there were a lot of D2C brands in New York. Um, there were a few kind of bigger founders that were advising me that I really appreciated. Um, and I felt like, you know, of course, for kind of capital markets and for talent, there was a lot of reasons to be here, but just the the positive friction you get from meeting people was incredible and it actually was how we got into our accelerator in the first place was they came to one of those events where i think at that point um one of the earlier events was i think it was either equinox or outdoor voices that they came to that we were serving coffee and they just saw the fervor they saw the adoration they're like this there's something here like some people are busting they're just so excited um even if we don't it, I will say um, they were super excited about how excited people were. The initial reception from investors was oftentimes being a little perplexed because when people think about coffee, they think about all the different ways they've consumed it. They think about all the brands they've seen. And at first glance, it feels like, oh my God, isn't there like a million coffee brands? Like, I don't, I don't understand where the, where the white space is. 
you really do have to kind of work through that journey of, yes, I understand that when you think of coffee, you think of a million brands, but if you parse this down, when it comes to that home experience, there is a really interesting white space that exists. And it's part of the reason why there aren't a lot of brands here is it takes, it takes a very kind of unique network and capital base to get into that space. And you really need to have that buy-in. And I think that a lot of people miss that early on. Yeah, I think one thing that you mentioned that really stands out when you're evaluating different opportunities is like how to evaluate a market, right? So a lot of entrepreneurs might like shy away from a market because they're, it's like a very crowded space. Um, but a lot of times that's where you can actually find white space because there's already market demand there, right? And if you're able to like unlock the demand for all the people who are already, you know, doing one thing and you're actually able to capture that demand, then it's a massive market. And I think one thing that you hit on earlier in the, in the show about the macro trends you were identifying, it was almost, it's almost as if coffee culture, even in the US has become more and more and more sophisticated over time. And as a consumer becomes more sophisticated about their wants, right? Like back in the day, they're cool with like, oh, Starbucks is like the best thing ever. Cause like we haven't had, <laughs> we've been drinking like totally crappy coffee before. But as you become more and more advanced in your coffee and as that, that happens to a whole society, now you unlock this whole white space that you're able to um, tap into. So I think that and framing it that way when you're evaluating opportunities is really neat. So one thing I really wanted to hear about now that like we've got you, you're knocking on doors, you're in, you have the machine out in the wild. Like what is the, what what's the reaction to it? Like, are people like, wait a minute, is that like, that's one machine, it's grinding the beans, it's making the coffee. Like what's, what are, what are some of the uh, initial um, reactions on the positive side and the negative side? Yeah, I mean, that was, <laughs> Not to, not to always connect it back to the fundraising side, but that's kind of almost where it was like funny for me and then, and then like in a rather facetious way, but it was just funny to like reflect because I remember just every time I was serving coffee, the enthusiasm was so high. And of, of course you can kind of like chalk, chalk that up to or, or calibrate it down a little bit for founder bias because I probably remember those moments where people's, you know, smiling ear to ear and how much that made me just feel amazing. But I just remember how positive the reception was from consumers and how excited they were to get it. I mean, look, mind you, when I only had two machines, right? Like I had nothing to ship at that time, 2017, just getting started. Um, there was there was really nothing that you could buy, but <laughs> all pre-supply chain problem uh, times that, you know, now we're in this current zeitgeist. But um, I think that I think that what I always noticed was really interesting was that the reception was really positive. And we were trying to raise money and it was really, really challenging. And I felt like the notion of sunk cost theory is a really important one for people to understand. And I remember I was like trying to always be very grounded in my thought around the business. Like, are, are there legs here? Like, does this have an, is there an opportunity or am I just kind of being hard headed on wanting to pursue this venture? And I just remember every time I would go out to market, those two macro factors that I felt I were the core of my thesis at the beginning. I felt like they always got corroborated even more every time I'd go out to market in terms of, oh my gosh, wait, they, they would literally not understand. They would go, where do the pods go? Where, where, where are the pods? And they're like, there's no, like the beans are, like you can see them right there. And they're like, oh, nice. Okay, cool. Like any beans? Like, yeah, any. They're like, oh my God. Yeah. So like, I love this cafe. And like, yeah, of course, that's the whole idea. It's wherever you go, they are oftentimes selling beans now. And you can bring that experience home. You can have that because everybody consumes a little differently every morning. It's you have the same person you know, on the weekend versus the weekday, they might want to bring that experience into the home and have a slow morning. 
And that that was one of the things that I always found really tough for me was I was like in the early days, I was like, these I'm not I'm not crazy here. Like this is getting validated even more than what I thought it was. And I think the white space is even bigger than I thought it was um, in terms of how people were receiving the product. In terms of like areas where, you know, obviously we 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 knew that we couldn't be everything for everyone. And that's why I also tell my team that like I knew that people consume coffee very differently and we shouldn't be trying to kind of force a square peg into a round hole. So if somebody wants a certain type of coffee or if somebody only likes it a certain way, you know, it, it wasn't trying to force it on people if that wasn't what they were going for. And I, you know, it's espresso based. There's many different types of coffee, whether or not, you know, some people tell us they only, you know, do cold brew, for example, or something like that. And understanding that like, okay, that's, that's fine. Oftentimes it's a communal device in your household, so everyone's kind of using it, but we don't need to force it on people because I knew the space we were playing in. I knew how big the TAM was. I knew that our offering was better than anything else out there. So kind of in that marketing funnel, as long as you knew that we existed, and if you were in, in market for this product, in that consideration period, we won, full stop. It wasn't- Why? A, what's that? No, I was going to ask. So, you know, that being said, with go to market, um, you mentioned the household, the communal household. How did you did you drill it down to, you know, families um, like who became, I guess, the customer persona that you went after? Because this is also a product that you can sell into apartment complexes. Hey, let's take a B2B approach and, you know, go out there like that. Um, so and, and how is this is currently sold through e-commerce right um like is there any b2b angle or yeah how did you go to market yeah all you commercial developers out there hit me up (laughs) um uh yeah no i mean look we definitely have um just same way you see in espressos in some of these offices right and you you even see the smaller like ascensos or cities and small offices um granted they're usually like beat to death but you'll, you'll see them there um, it's not it's not terribly dissimilar for us, right? So pre so pre pandemic, about twenty percent of our customers were coming from that I would call it like quasi B two B direction. That could be people that are either developing space that want a few machines, and they're kind of piling out because again, you got to remember we were new then, so like people were still like testing the waters with us and seeing are we like reliable brand, um, are we there really providing that level of white glove service that we talk about, and there was that side of it. There was also an interesting side where it was a lot of these kind of design studios, PR firms, tech startups, people that were investing in the space that really wanted to like kind of flex with the amenities that they had. And I was always really proud by the the companies that would be buying them because they were really cool offices. And then I would actually get to go there and like be like, hey, let me demo the machine for you. And also this place is awesome. But um, that was that was always a part of the business. As you can imagine, when the pandemic hit, um, that all kind of went by the wayside and we really focused almost the entire business on the consumer segment and residential customers. Of course, that definitely more than picked up the slack given the, the, the kind of swing that happened into investing in the home. But um, we're seeing that pick back up again. And that's always been something that we've really liked. We don't brand or build specifically for any of these kind of like B2B use cases. And it kind of goes back to that point of not trying to push the product on anybody. Sometimes people call us and they're like, yeah, like I wanna use this for 500 cups a day in my office with like, you know, 250 people. And we're like, okay, 
unless you want to buy a few machines, we, would, we wouldn't advise that. And it's not even that they don't buy it. It's a lot of times they do just because they're like, oh, we're going to get a machine anyways. Like, we just want this one. But I think it's really good to educate people ahead of time. Like, what, what purpose does this serve? Where does it fit into either your home or be at your office? How is it going to kind of integrate? Because I want people to have a good experience. It's the same reason we sell coffee. It's like I want to promote really good roasters so that you kind of out of the box, have a great time with the device. There is a little bit of like a trash in trash out if you're using certain coffees and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. So I won't say any brands, but like there are just certain beans that it's like, okay, there is a categorical difference here. We want to be a catalyst or an advocate for these roasters that are oftentimes on the smaller side. So that's also, we have our own filter on how we work with roasters. Um, and it's just ultimately leads to a better customer experience. So for us, it's very much a like user centric company. We're from how we build our headcount as a, a, you know, internally in the HQ and, and how we treat customers and how we kind of go from that pre-purchase to post-purchase per, oh, excuse me, how we go from the pre-purchase to post-purchase journey. I think it's trying to be mindful of that the whole time. It's, there's no smoke and mirrors. There's no obfuscation. Let people know what it is. And let's make sure that they're, we're doing everything we can to make sure that they have the best experience. Sahan, the other trend that um, I like in how you guys think about things and setting things up is, is the fact that you chose to basically own the means of production for coffee, right? So like for consumers, they need to make coffee and there's only a couple ways to make it. And if you're making it in the home every day, especially accelerated during the pandemic, when a lot more people are probably making coffee in the home, you know, there's only so many ways you can make espresso. You can, you know, you can have fancy espresso machine. You can have like a coffee maker, maybe like a stovetop machine, French press, whatever. But like normally whatever your way of making coffee is like once you have that machine to do that, like you're you're pretty much set. So I think one, it's really fascinating that you're able to go after um, you know, the phrase like sell the shovels in a gold rush. Like you have all these people who are like making all these different coffee brands and you're like, hell yeah, just keep, you know, the more people that are like making coffee, like you own the utility to turn those grounds or those beans into the drinkable form. Um, so I, I, I just like that in terms of like when you're evaluating different opportunities or for, for our listeners, right? Like just thinking about, um, it's not just, obviously it's about creating an amazing customer experience, but also like if you have an advantage where you're able to own, you know, like the means of production or, or where you can get tailwinds from the market as the market progresses, that's always a great place to be. Um, and that leads me into our next topic. I know you hit on it briefly, the two things of customer experience as well as team building. I know they're like slightly different things. So why don't we jump into, um, let's jump into team building first, and then we can hit on your holistic customer experience and how you guys approach that. So from a team perspective, um, after you were knocking on the doors, you, you know, you're able to like raise a little bit of funding, get things off the ground, get things moving. Why don't you walk us through the process of what it was like to build your team at Terra Cafe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, scrappy would be an understatement for a while. Um, but absolutely when we got the pre-seed and then our seed round done, um, I was, I was excited to not just grow the team, but really like invest in the team and make that a pillar of who we are as a company about taking care of each other. And we, we were actually interestingly pretty spread out even in that time um, in terms of remote work, just being, uh, have, being a company that was founded in 
or I shouldn't say founded, but started in Germany and then being built out for a year in France and then coming to the US, there were just a, the network was very dispersed and we were working with a lot of different people. But um, when we really kind of switched from that kind of contractor role spread out geographically to FTEs, we were bringing in a lot of the, the talent that I was hoping to have as just kind of like table stakes for getting off the ground, right? So um, bringing in ops and, and, you know, CX and ops being kind of the first two hires, uh, bringing in even, you know, kind of creative uh, in-house, I think was rather unorthodox at the time. Um, a lot of people, I think that was the, the kind of those days were still like how much like Allbirds and all of them were touted for kind of working with certain agencies. And I think everybody knows, you know, those names. But um, I, 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 I think it was actually helpful that we hadn't raised that much. And it, it allowed for a certain level of prioritization and just having access to really, really good talent um, helped us kind of what I like to say, punch above our weight. We always looked more polished than people uh would expect for what we've raised. And I, I kind of let that continue to be a pillar with how we operate. I love punching above our weight. I love people being a little surprised when they hear how much we've raised and um, kind of where we're at as a team. But uh, yeah, I, I think more importantly than just filling out the departments and, and kind of getting those initial hires uh, onto the team, I, I think what it was being incredibly intentional about how we onboard people into the into the company and kind of what is our way of being and i think there's a it's a it's a good bit of humility in terms of recognizing uh that i i'm a first-time founder i think you know the, the ben harwitz book of hard thing about hard things talks a lot about being a first-time founder and certain challenges you just need to acknowledge to your team about your own limitations before you start putting really high expectations on them because you will put high expectations on them and you will still have to acknowledge you're a first time founder and learning as well. Um, I think it, it was incredibly, incredibly valuable. And I think the one thing that I've always found to be really effective is I always tell everyone when they start still to this day, I make sure no matter what, that this is an in-person conversation, but that we sit down together. And um, I, my whole team uh, has heard this to death at this point, but that, you know, if I can do one thing effectively, it's providing a space for psychological safety. And I think that's a really, really important element in a company because I think you do your best work when you can confidently say, I don't know, I need help or I made a mistake. You need to be able to confidently say that. And it doesn't always mean that everything, uh, it, it's not always okay to, to just keep making mistakes, but the idea is the clarity of thought that can exist when you feel that is incredibly valuable for productivity and for honestly the efficacy of communication in a company. And communication is everything. It's communication and ownership really when you join an early stage startup. And that whole confidence element to me, it's that I always say it's, 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 I heard it said this way and I really appreciated it, that it's, you know, confidence is, is not thinking you're infallible, it's knowing you're not and holding yourself in high regard. I think that's an insanely valuable headspace to live in for everybody that's going into a startup and it connects back to that equanimity. Hold your head up, be, you know, communicate effectively, communicate early, communicate often, be self-aware, have that IQ and have that EQ. You really need to have that EQ when it comes to a startup. Um, and I think you're gonna do your best work. And that's, that, that's really all you can do. If you've hired well, um, when, if you've hired well and you make a mistake, people are gonna have enough pride in their work that they're gonna be bothered that they made a mistake. 
And it's not that you don't acknowledge it. That's what communication is. You acknowledge it. It's going to happen. I assure you, every company is going to have that happen. But it's how you respond to those moments. And I think it's really valuable. And I think that plays a role. I, I, I can't, you know, I'm not going to pretend like that takes all the credit uh, for the team that we've built. Uh, it's just simply that kind of conversation that we have um, at the beginning. But I do think it plays a role in, in setting the table for people when they join the company is to have a sense of what is important to us. It's, it's competency, but it's also compassion for each other. Um, and I think in startups where if you're joining it, you're probably already a hustler. You don't really, you don't need to be taught that. You need a team to cultivate that. Um, I think that's really important. So I, I, I attribute a lot of our success to how we all work together. And I really appreciate every time I have a new person start and they join the team, they're like, this is a weird group of people. Like you all, like this is weird. And I'm like, I love how it comes out. It's almost like challenging to articulate because there is that feeling of th these group of people don't just really care about each other, they do, but they also really care about the business. They really, it's that, it's balancing both that is really impressive. And um, I think we set the tone early on and yes, it's, it's leading by example. Yes, it's not shying away from tough conversations, um, but you know, it's, it's one of those things that I, like I said, I don't want to, I, I certainly need to make it clear that it, you don't take all the credit for such a thing with just one conversation, um, but I think it's a pattern of behavior that gets built over time. I, I think I could not have been more discursive with that response, but um, hopefully that gives you some insight into how I've thought about team building. No, that's, re that's really helpful. And that's actually similar to you know how we approach team building as well. I think it's so important to be radically honest and optimistic at the same time right? Where you can have conversations like that with your team. And like you said, it's an early stage startup. There's not everyone is going to be perfect. People are going to make mistakes. But when you're acting like you're some big corporation and no one can make mistakes and everyone's like trying to cover their tracks and be like, no, I didn't do it. He did it. It's like, no, it's not a big deal. Let's figure it out and let's solve it so it doesn't happen again and, and keep things moving and creating that a safe space where you're actually able, where people are able to feel comfortable around like doing their best work and performing and, and really focusing on drilling that in, I think is a testament to your guys' obvious success over the last couple of years. Um, but I just from seeing it firsthand as an operator, it's it's so much better when you're able to have those conversations up front than letting things like build up and compound and people are like talking behind each other's back. And it, that's just not a that's that creates toxicity that doesn't lead to productivity in any meaningful way. I, I am such a strong believer in setting that tone early because I think that exact toxicity, if you don't catch it at the beginning, metastasizes over time to a point that you can't undo it. And just as you said, that whole sniping and you know trying to cover things up, in a startup, optics and posturing, you don't have time for that. There's no time for that. Tell me what's happening. I need to know now what's happening of course, part of effective communication is, of course, it's, it's breaking things up into a way which is like, this is what's happened. This is, this is what we're doing about it. This is kind of the ETA. Even if you don't know something, it's like, that's the thing. Sometimes people get nervous. They're like, I don't even know the answer to it. Like, that's okay. Then you say that. A good update is an update. A bad update is an update. No update is also an update. Tell me that you don't know what's, what it is and this is what you're trying to do to figure it out because maybe through that dialogue, we're going to realize that we can focus somewhere else. That might 
that Welch had that answer or that response or that path to a solution sooner. And I think that's where there's a lot of value is acknowledging like, hey, it's an exercise in empathy. You're feeling like in this moment that uh, it's, it's intimidating or you're nervous and you don't want to admit that. It's okay. Good. Acknowledge that feeling. It's out on the table. We can move past it now. How are we actually trying to solve this at the moment? I think it's, I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it, I took this lesson when I heard it from kind of couples therapy. It's like the exercise in empathy that they tell you to do. It's like, you need to explain to your partner what they are thinking until you have explained it in such a way that they agree with how you've articulated it. So it's like, and then vice versa. It's like, let me say things in such a way that I think this is what you think until you think I said it right. I love that. It's like, yes, great. Now do, do the other way. Even if you don't agree, it just forces you to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And I think it just clears things up so much faster. And I, and I think everyone's probably at a certain point. I know like the first startup I worked at or even, even some of the other, everyone's like experienced like a culture where it feels like people are like walking around and hiding things. And like you as an operator, you're like, what's going on here? And you don't know, like, you don't quite know. And, and what's so, what's so great is like, I've had the pleasure, uh, experience of being on both sides. And even as an operator, even if you're a higher up, right? Like even if you're a manager or you're a founder, and you can have that radical transparency with your team because sometimes you don't know all the answers. Like it's amazing to see the the relief and the look and the excitement on your teammates' faces when you're radically um, honest and transparent about certain things. When you're like, "Hey, here's the deal. I don't. We don't know about this, but I wanted to tell you as soon as I could, so we're all on the same page here and we're all working in this to solve this problem together." Their eyes light up and they're like, "Oh my God, yes! Like let's." let's solve this as opposed to being like, oh, this guy, like, what's he doing? He's not like letting me in on things, like all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, nobody, nobody, nobody has time for the smoke and mirrors play. And frankly, it's so pernicious. It's, it's like all of a sudden, even if you don't realize it, you're subtly teaching everyone else how to behave. You, even if you don't think you are, you are teaching them that like, we're, we're kind of these animals that there's a lot of, there's just so much happening in the subconscious. And I think I'm not trying to turn this into some sort of like esoteric psychology discussion. But I think it's like really important to make yourself vulnerable and being like, yeah, like this is where I'm at. This is what I understood. It, it's so effective. And I think it actually like catches people on their heels. We're like, whoa, like that's okay. Wow. Like, and I, I just think it's, it's refreshing to see how people react to it because I think then people get like really surprised and they're like, okay, like if they're coming from a big corporate, especially it's like, it's almost like one of these kind of like unhealthy family dynamics where like they don't talk and they don't hug. And we're like, you're like, you're like, you're like Okay, all right, I got it. It's okay. And we're going to slowly, we're going to nurture this. We're going to take it slow. We're going to bring you into another environment. And I think it's awesome to see it turn a corner too. But in any case, I, I super agree with all of that. No, I love that. Um, so, okay, so moving on from culture and team building, let's get a little bit into um, customer experience and how you guys actually think about building a holistic customer experience around your, pro around your product, which is a physical product. And you can kind of create this whole ecosystem where there's other complementary products around it. So why don't you just walk us through your customer journey, I guess, from discovering about Terra Cafe, purchasing a machine to becoming part of your ecosystem? And then how do you like kind of grow out from there? What are the touch points? And how do you just think holistically about the, cu the current, the customer experience as it is in its current state, as well as maybe, you know, other directions that it could go in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, look, first and foremost, I want to say that we have an insanely talented head of our CX team. So our CXO, Kate Marquez, is, is just 
puts on a master class on how to handle this. And I, I, I think if you can probably imagine, I, I pull a lot from the tonality and tenor of how we talk about the team and also how we treat our customers. I think that relationship, there's a certain level of authenticity there that people feel. I think more and more customers have gotten really astute. I think that's kind of one of these, um, you know, consistent notes we're hearing in terms of how people are marketing to like people can kind of like smell the BS these days and you can try and be clever, but at the end of the day, you're either being authentic or you're not. Um, and yeah, we built, we built out a CX team in house, which was definitely controversial when we were, when we were, um, you know, pursuing that path in the early days, just given where a lot of people were shifting or the, the, the tides were shifting. There were a lot of startups that were also trying to solve this in terms of how does that scale, but given what we talk about in terms of customer proximity, in terms of education, there's just that relationship where we can learn a lot from people the same way that I was learning in the early days, just serving coffee to people. Like there's just, there's a lot in terms of how people are actually just learning about this category as a whole that I think is really cool that we can be an agent of change for. So that's, that's actually having CX at the kind of center of where a lot of functions uh, in Terra Cafe happen and, and having them having a kind of close relationship with our creative team, having a close relationship with our growth team, having a close relationship with our ops team. I think being able to really have that kind of communication flow with each other helps ultimately for a way better customer experience. And then you kind of naturally, of course, have that flywheel where they become the biggest evangelist for the brand, where they're the ones who are touting how, you know, there's somebody here who's going to pick up the phone, going to be able to walk you through everything, can hand it off to someone else if needed. I think that it's not, um, it's, it's, it's constantly validated back to us how different it feels versus, especially the incumbents in their brand, because you know the average age of our competitors is over 100 years old. And it's not kind of taking shots at any legacy or heritage companies, but they definitely don't have that customer intimacy. And I think that's, where everybody that's in the kind of D2C space is familiar with, you know, you can have that proximity um, to a unique degree, but it's also then how do you utilize it? How do you tap into that? So that can be in a pre-purchase, you know, journey, of course, being, being engaged and aware of what's happening on anything, be it a social channel, be it our own Terra Cafe owned uh, groups or, or customer generated ones that we love to see, like customers kind of like, creating their own groups around our product and wanting to share different things they've learned. I think that's one of the things that gets our CX team the most excited is like them actually being like, hey, like let's let's create a community around this because we're starting to realize, okay, there's a little bit of like an identity association. Like I have the I have a TK. Like that's that's something of course we want to like keep fostering that. And then kind of going into the post-purchase journey, whether that's you know kind of like building out loyalty around that or just like checking in on people. There's there's one way to do it, which is, I think, a little bit more marketing driven, which is, of course, like we do have these peripheral products and there are things that we want people to have the best experience with the machine. But I think the other part is like just learning and educating. And it's that give and take that we try and lean into as much as possible, because I think with a product like ours, it's almost it's it's almost kind of like a blessing and a curse, if I'm honest, because uh, if you think about it, they're, they're using this device every morning. It's, it is part of that morning routine. It is part of that ritual. And it's beautiful because it's such a meaningful touch point that we get to exist in. That is a rich territory to occupy both like physically and temporally in someone's life. 
But that also means if they ever have a question or they don't understand something, which can happen because, you know, espresso, cappuccinos, lattes, and so on, there's a lot to just kind of get versus that versus what you might be expecting. That can also be like a really intense moment. And that's why we had to, we really had to double down on the sex. I was like, we need to be there in that moment. Like we have to be there. This is the early days of the company. This is us establishing that first touch point, that first relationship. And these are going to be those people that, you know, a decade, a century, maybe later, are the ones that are kind of like spreading the word and super excited that like you become this indelible brand. And one one thing there is I feel like a lot of brands obviously talk about CX, why it's important, how you can use it as a, a growth lever. But I think for you guys in particular, you have a unique kind of you're in a unique space where your competitors, if you want to call like people who are like making, you know, different consumer products that are in the home, like their CX, the bar of their CX is so like low. Like I'll give you, uh, I'll give you an example. Like I have a, like I got a Breville juicer, for example, like we make like green juices every day and just trying to like, like, and of course the juicer broke. Um, and just trying to like get these people on the phone to like exchange it for the warranty or something that they gave me. It's like the most miserable experience ever. So like, and I think people probably know that these sort of like consumer electronics, these goods that are in the home, like it's not easy to like get high quality CX with them. So I think that's a massive opportunity for you. And like you were saying, that real estate in the, in a temporal sense, as well as a physical sense, like every time, if you have a good experience with a brand, every time someone has guests in their home and sees it, they're going to like talk about it. They're going to be like, oh, what's that space age looking coffee machine you've got on your, you know? So I think it's such an awesome opportunity. And it's really smart for you guys to lean into because uh, it's almost like an arbitrage opportunity. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it, Absolutely. First of all, absolutely. In terms of like seeing it at your friend's house, like we were always joking that we become kind of like the kings and queens of the cul-de-sac where it's like, they're like, wait, did, oh, you're going to get an espresso? No, absolutely. Did you see what they have? I want that thing. And we're like, cool. Like, that's awesome. Like it's a, it's a little bit of a flex product again. And like, it connects with your identity. And you're like, I have this thing, but spot on it's, it's a hurdle when the baseline is that low. It also freaks people out at the beginning. So you have to like reassure them in the beginning, like we're here, we're going to be for you. We're here for you. We got you. That is a hurdle that you have to get over in terms of like a barrier to transact. But then also subsequently, when you get on the other side of that, it's basically like an asset on your balance sheet. You, you know, you, 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 you got to put that into your brand equity. Like you're, you are there for them. That does matter. It does make a difference because the opposite is really painful and people will definitely be vocal about it. So I think that. I kind of like it. I don't want to like reveal my secret sauce because I don't want all of our competitors doing the same thing. But I definitely, I think that um, the way, especially that Kate, our, our head of CX has built that up has been, it's, it's been a huge differentiator. No question about it. I mean, especially in a company where you're building hardware and software. So your customers are dealing with situations with both of those things, um, which require different departments, collaboration between teams in completely different ways than companies that just build so software or hardware. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, it's the hardware is hard adage isn't wrong. I'm not trying to, I, I always say, I'm like, I don't think we made it like easy per se. I think we understand it. I think the comprehension is there, but it definitely, yeah, I'll, I'll double down on what I said at the beginning, right? It takes a village. I bet. So I, I actually realized I, you know, I didn't do my job here correctly in the beginning. I didn't explain to the audience how beautiful and aesthetically pleasing your product is because I saw it 
Blaine saw it. You know what it looks like, obviously. So it is obvious for all of us. Um, but whoever is listening, make sure to go check it out. Um, and I also heard great things about the software in itself. Like it's not just a shiny box. Um, you know, people are saying great things about the software um, in terms of what I was able to read and see. So Sahand, this has been you know, an awesome episode. Um, we really appreciate you coming on here and sharing um, everything in detail from your go-to-market to your team building culture. Um, and so, you know, for people that want to see the Terra Cafe, want to buy one or want to keep up with you personally, where can they do all of that? Yeah. I, um, thank you. Thank you for kind of uh, giving me the time, um, letting me talk your ear off here. I, I would say, you know, I, I just point everyone to to our website, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I I would go check out terracafe.com. Um, we actually just released our, our kind of new branding, so our new site is live. We're really proud. That's kind of been uh, a journey in and of itself, and um, we're just really excited to be, to, to be sharing that with the world. Um, so definitely go check us out. Um, all the social handles are at terracafe. Um, so... Uh, look at look us up on 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 any of the social handles. I think uh, I'm just gonna spell it out for people because uh, of course another startup with a funky spelling, but T E R R A K A F F E. And then uh, for the listeners here, we just put a little uh, discount code for the machine if they're interested in trying it out for themselves for D 2 C Pod for 75 bucks off. So give it a go for yourself and uh, ride that lightning. <laughs> awesome! Thanks so much for, for coming on, Zahan. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.